Today's passage of scripture is going to be from Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. When you have turned there, will you stand for the reading of God's word? That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that they had, that happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered there, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and, uh, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. As we start our time together tonight in worship, I want you to think about uh, a situation that will never happen, and I know it will never happen because it's completely hypothetical, okay? Imagine for just a moment that you were Jesus, and you had to prove to the rest of the world that that was true. And when I say Jesus here, I'm encompassing not just Jesus, the man from Nazareth, but also the fact that he's the Christ, the fact that he's God. If you were the God-man, Jesus Christ, how would you go about proving to the rest of the world your truthfulness? What means would you employ? We live in a world today where we have access to many technologies, many forms of research, many forms of documentation, and many of us who live in that kind of world might be tempted to think if I was Jesus, 
or if I was God, here's how I would have revealed myself to creation and to the world and to those who are mine. I want you to hang on to that question because we're going to come back to it. Because what Jesus does in this text is he gives us a way, he gives us the way by which he reveals himself to his people. The way. So if you're Jesus and you're, and you're given any number of ways which you can tell people and convince them that you are in fact the God-man, the Messiah, how would you do it? This text tells us how Jesus does that. And it might surprise you, it might shock you, uh, it might uh, annoy you a little bit, but this is the way in which he has chosen to reveal himself. And that is not by miraculous signs and wonders, although he does that. That is not by uh, dazzling displays of glory, although he does that. Here, when he encounters two disciples on the road who are now doubting the identity of their teacher, he points them to the text of Scripture and takes them through the Scriptures to show that what he has done in the past, accomplished by his death and resurrection, was what the Scripture predicted, and therefore, he is the Christ. And the reason I want you to hone in on that is because that is accessible to every Christian today in sharing the gospel with anyone else in the world. Here, Jesus gives to us not something that he alone can do, but something he also tells his disciples to do as they go through all the world, making disciples of all nations. So if you want to convince someone who you love and care for deeply of the truth of Christianity, of the truth of Jesus Christ, here's a method, here's a mode to do it. You don't need to be inventive. You don't need to be a genius apologist. You simply need to follow the pattern of Jesus as laid out here in the text. So that's, that's where we start. But the text uh, takes us in a couple of turns. The nice thing is that, it, that it's a story, so it's easy for us to hold the whole story in our minds kind of all at one time. So the basic, basic plot line of the story, uh, if you remember uh, at the beginning of chapter 24, a couple of people, two women, go to the tomb to try to anoint the body of Jesus with oils and spices. They go to the tomb, they find the tomb empty. Not only do they find the tomb empty, they find two angels who uh, speak to them and say, uh, did you not know that Jesus was going to rise on the third day? Look here, this tomb is empty. He is not here. They go and they tell the other disciples. They tell Peter. Peter runs to the tomb and he looks for himself to see what is true. And he is confounded. In fact, as the text tells us in verse 12, he went home marveling at what had happened. That's not in awe and wonder. That's more like confusion. I don't know how to make sense of all these details. And then we find two disciples on the road traveling. They encounter a third man who is unknown to them, but we as readers are privileged to know this is Christ. And this third man, Christ, comes to the two and he speaks to them, asking them about how they're doing, you know, normal talk as you're walking on the road. And they tell him about their great distress because the one whom they followed has just been crucified and it's now been three days since he's been dead. And more than that, they can't find his body anymore either. The tomb is empty. And so what he does is he goes and shows them from the scriptures, this third traveler, how the suffering and crucifixion and death of this Messiah 
was not out of step with the Old Testament expectation of the Messiah. After doing that, they arrive to their traveling point. He's hosted for dinner. And in him hosting them for dinner, breaking bread with them, he reveals himself to them as himself after having laid the groundwork of Scripture. And then he disappears. And they reflect on this experience and say, well, the whole time he was speaking with us, did we not know that he was really the Christ? Did we not know what he was saying was true? So the plot of the text is pretty simple. That's a whole story you can hold kind of easily in your head. And the center point, the conclusion of of the text, is the, the fact that their hearts are burning within them, and this for them is a confirmation of the truthfulness of all that has taken place in the preceding uh, 20 or so verses. Their hearts are burning, and therefore, they can say that all of what has just taken place is not just true, but it's also worthy of worship. It's worthy of response in praise. So that's the basic outline of the text. Uh, And I've already told you the, the central point of the text is that Jesus is giving us a model, a mechanism by which we can share the gospel with any, any person, doubters, skeptics, anyone on earth. And so let me uh, take you through that methodology that Jesus uses. Uh, you're going to find all of the meat and potatoes of this text in verse uh, 25, 26, and 27 of the text. So verse 25, this is Jesus responding to the disciples. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Let's pause there. All that the prophets have spoken assumes all of the Old Testament revelation to come before. So here he's saying, you should, don't you get that the whole Old Testament spoke of these things? And like a, like a student who can't figure out a math problem who raises their hand and needs help from the teacher to get to the solution, here Jesus comes and says, let me put together for you the steps which you should have been able to put together yourself. Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? This is what we would call begging the question. Or, uh, or G- what Jesus is doing is he's asking a question that seems like the answer is obvious. He says, was it not necessary? And if you're the disciples at this moment, you might be thinking, well... We didn't think so. We didn't think it was necessary. And now you're saying it to us like it should have been obvious. And then what he does is going through the whole Bible, the Bible they have available to them at the time, the Old Testament. He interprets to them how all these things fit together concerning himself. Now, as readers, it's Jesus saying it about himself. If you're those two disciples, it's this third traveler talking about how the Christ was doing these things and it was expected from Scripture. So just keep that in mind as you're thinking through this. So what he first does is he takes them to the necessity, the necessity of the event. And by the event, I mean the crucifixion part. Because the reigning in glory part of the king, the messianic uh, triumphal entry in glory, you'll remember in Luke chapter 19, that stuff every disciple can get on board with. Every single Jewish uh, follower of Jesus has no problem with him being the messianic king. That's why most of them are on board. The thing that is necessary, that he has to persuade them is necessary, is his humiliation, his crucifixion, and his death. 
which results from all those things. Even the resurrection uh, is necessary, but what he's probably got to persuade them of is the fact that he needs to die in order for all of these things to take place. Now, the necessity of the cross is one of the reasons why the cross is so central to Christian theology. The cross reconciles sinners to God. The cross puts all things that's broken in creation back into right standing. And Jesus says, it is necessary that all of these things took place just like that. Now that phrase, it is necessary, is a translation of a singular underlying word in the original text. And you can trace that, that, frame, that phrase's usage throughout Luke's gospel. It's used in a couple of, uh, like in a more casual way, like uh, the Passover lamb is sacrificed on this day because it is necessary for it to be done so. So it's talking about things that must happen in a certain way. But also Jesus uses it often of himself to refer to this exact event, his humiliation, death, and crucifixion. Uh, for example, if you go to Luke 9.22, you'll see that he says, it is necessary that the Son of Man should be betrayed at the hands of sinful men. In fact, there's a number of references I could list to you where he says that exact same thing. But if you just look at verse 7 of chapter 24, you'll see that the angels use the same phrase to refer to his resurrection. And that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Now, the phrase, it is necessary, is translated here in the English the Son of Man must be. So it must happen this way. It is necessary for it to happen this way. That's the same word in the original text. And similarly, in verse 44 of chapter 24, you have the same phrase said again. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So the necessity of the crucifixion is Jesus says all throughout scripture, pregnant in all of the Old Testament texts, and something that he taught about regularly in his ministry. So Jesus says this is important. As disciples of Jesus, we should also think it is important. The necessity of the crucifixion. Now, everyone gets, uh, every Protestant, I should say, gets that the crucifixion is at least central to Protestant theology. But many of us struggle to, let's say, defend the doctrine against people who would say, we can put the crucifixion aside and still retain the core of the Christian faith. Okay? Here's a text where Jesus seems to think of the crucifixion itself as the necessary event to persuade all of his followers of. To do away with the crucifixion then is to do away with the essential work of Jesus in his earthly ministry. And when I say the crucifixion, keep in mind, you cannot separate really the crucifixion and the resurrection. But at this point, we're honing in on the difficult part, okay? the fact that he would die. This is a necessary event. In fact, it is so necessary an event that many of the Old Testament, or, uh, sorry, many of the early church fathers used the crucifixion and the subsequent results of the crucifixion as an argument against the Jews for why Christianity was the true heir of the Old Testament faith. So to quote uh, one uh, scholar on this, this is uh, D.A. Carson, Douglas Moo, and their commentary on the New Testament. They say it this way, the New Testament writers and the other first century Jews, so Christians and Jews, they carried on an extensive dialogue from within Judaism itself about just who had the right to carry the mantle of the successors of the Old Testament faith. So here is an event that is necessary, 
And it's so necessary that Christians and Jews who reject Jesus as the Messiah would say, here is the central point of contention in our faith. Christianity is arguing that it is not an offshoot religion from Judaism. It is arguing that it is the true continuation of the Jewish faith of the Old Testament, because this is the Jewish Messiah, after all, whom we worship and praise. This is, the, this is a central, necessary event, which had to have happened, and all of the early church fathers seem to think so as well. In fact, one early church father, who you might know, Athanasius, uh, famous for his defense of the Trinity, particularly the deity of the Son, uh, he, he has many treatises, but in his treatise uh, called On the Incarnation, he points to the crucifixion event and the prophecy surrounding the crucifixion event and says it is so in, uh, inconfusably necessary for these things to have taken place the way that it did that if, the, if Jesus was not the Messiah, then no one is the Messiah. And here, here's the basic outline of his argument. He says there's many prophecies in the Old Testament which kind of have this ambiguous end date to them. So some of the prophecies talk about in the latter days, in the last days, or on that day. Uh, if you're reading the Old Testament prophets, you're like, what is this day they keep talking about? And it's not clear from the text when that date will occur, but it's someday in the future when things are put right. There's one prophet, prophet Daniel, in chapter 9 of his prophecy, who speaks not of just that day in the future, but who actually gives, a, a, you might know this as Daniel's 70 weeks timeline. And in his 70 weeks, he gives a number of weeks associated for each of these events which are to happen in Israel. And as Athanasius argues, culminating in the birth, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of the Messiah. And so he says, if Daniel's prophecy is not about Jesus, and here he's writing uh, in the third century, he's saying then, then Daniel's prophecy was wrong based on the dating of it. And so he says this event is so necessary, it's the hinge point on which prophecy is understood. And here he then goes for a proof of how do we know that this is what Daniel's prophecy is talking about. He says in the Old Testament, even after the Babylonian exile, there were ongoing prophets and revelations and signs from God. But since Christ's resurrection, we have no prophets because the one who was, who was prophesied about has come. He says it this way. For when did a prophet and vision cease from Israel, save for when Christ came? For it is a sign and an important proof of the coming of the word of God that Jerusalem now no longer stands, nor is there any prophet raised up for the vision to be revealed to them. And that is all very natural. For when that which was signified had come, what need is there any longer for anything to signify him? So he says all of these Old Testament prophets, it is necessary that they were speaking about Christ, because the temple of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is, is no longer standing, and there's no more prophecy from the Jewish people anymore. And that's still true today, by the way. There's, there's no temple in the Middle East for the Jewish people to worship at, and there's no Jewish prophets anymore. There's Jewish rabbis, there's Jewish teachers, there's Jewish commentators on the Old Testament, but there's no more prophets from the Jewish people. And here Athanasius says, here's a proof that the prophet who was expected has come. And here is the timeline, and so it is necessary that it was, in fact, the Christ. By the way, if you're thinking, how does all of this relate to this Luke text? In Daniel 70 weeks, what the Messiah does, the anointed one, as it's translated often in English Bibles, what he does is he makes an end to sin through himself being cut off. That's what the prophecy expects. 
And so here Jesus is the necessary one fulfilling that prophecy. So Jesus argues to these disciples that his resurrection is not only anticipated in the Old Testament, but also necessary and needful in order for God's plan of salvation to work itself out in the text. So there's, you've heard from Athanasius, you've heard from uh, just uh, me quoting Carson and Mu about the necessity of this event. Let's consult one other, at least New Testament writer in the first century to see the necessity of this. If you look at Hebrews chapter nine with me, you'll flip to the book of Hebrews chapter nine. We're gonna look at a couple of verses that talk about the necessity of this event. Now, uh, if you're in a stout student of scripture, you could probably think of a dozen or so other cross-references we could look at that also prove the necessity of this event. I'm just giving you a, a sprinkling, if you like. So Hebrews, uh, likely originally a sermon, used to argue that the new, the new covenant has come, it has been inaugurated by Christ, and then it argues in various ways that Christ is better than all of these Old Testament expectations. He is the substance they were the shadow. Hebrews chapter 9, uh, look at verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 9. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. What the author of Hebrews is doing is he's talking about the Levitical sacrificial atonement system, uh, what Moses writes about. And he says, this is how the law works. It anticipates cleansing through blood. Okay. Then go to verse 23. Thus it was necessary, you hear that phrase again, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with the rites, but the heavenly things themselves to be, to be purified with better sacrifices than these. So the earthly things, meaning the temple and all of the temple ornaments, they can be purified with bull's blood and goat's blood. That's what the Levitical priests would do. They would sprinkle blood on these earthly things to cleanse them. But the heavenly things themselves, let's say the true substance of what those rites are pointing to, must have been purified with better sacrifices than these. So then, verse uh, 25, or sorry, verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, meaning the temple, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest who enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the necessity of the, what the author of Hebrews is saying, all of the Old Testament sacrificial system expects a perfect sacrifice to deal with sins once and for all. And here comes Christ by the sacrifice of himself making clean all things. Or as you see in verse 4 of chapter 10, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So how necessary is Christ's crucifixion, death on the cross? It's necessary because the whole Old Testament is expecting a perfect, pure sacrifice to make concrete all of what is being imaged and shadowed in the past. No 
lamb offering, no sacrificial atoning Passover lamb ever took away anyone's sin. But Christ, through his death, does actually take away sin. So his sacrifice is necessary to deal with all of what's expected in the Old Testament. Or as uh, one of my professors, Dr. Drake, has said it, what, the whole, what Jesus does in the crucifixion is he, he, actually, he actually completes the picture of the Old Testament. He says it this way. The whole Old Testament is just, is just writing checks that Jesus Christ finally can cash at the cross. The whole Old Testament is just writing check after check after check. Here's a sin which we're paying forward for some future dates to actually be dealt with. Taking out credit. Writing checks that they can't cash. And here comes Jesus dealing with all of the debt of Israel, all of the debt of his disciples, and all of the debt for the church in the future on the cross. The necessity of the event. So not only do we have a necessary event from this text, but this necessary event gives us a way to read and understand all of the Old Testament texts. You've already seen me give, uh, give a little hint of this with Hebrews and the Levitical sacrificial system. But in verse 27 of Luke 24, uh, what Jesus does, he doesn't just assert that all of that is true, that the Christ must suffer these things. He shows it to them from the text of Scripture that these things are true. So beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted them in all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now Moses and the prophets is shorthand for the Torah and all that follows the Torah. In the Hebrew canon, you have, you have what Moses writes, the Torah. You have the latter prophets. You have the former prophets. And then you have the wisdom literature. So the Psalms and Proverbs and things like that. What Jesus is doing is he's using a, a common referral. Luke's using a common reference to talk about the whole Old Testament canon points to Jesus, and Jesus uses that as a basis of evidence for how he is the center point, the focal point to which these things are. So if the crucifixion is a necessary event, what it does is it shapes how we read the Bible. It must shape how we read the Bible. In fact, if you think about all of the early converts to Christianity, Paul, all of the 3,000 on Pentecost, the 12 disciples, every early Every uh, believer of the first 5,000 or so who, who come to faith after the resurrection, they're all Jews. These are not people from outside of Judaism coming in, uh, co-opting Judaism for their pagan ends, and then creating a new religion. We have a bunch of faithful, observing Jews who come to say, that what our Old Testament speaks of, what our, what our Bible speaks of, is this Christ who is come. All, so all of, their, all of the first converts to Christianity are Jewish converts. All of the uh, faithful in Jesus' day, uh, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, are often shown to be Jews. You have uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. You have Anna the prophetess and Simeon. All of these are faithful Jews expecting the advent of the Messiah. So when Jesus uses the Old Testament to argue that it talks about him, that's not a foreign uh, way of reading the text smashed onto the text to get a definitive result. Jesus is saying, he's saying in a time when, when there is no Christocentric hermeneutic, if you like, he's saying even a natural reading of these texts makes you conclude that they talk about me. They talk about the Messiah who was cut off and has now made a restitution for sin. Now, if you're asking, 
what is this sermon or Bible study that Jesus does for these disciples? No one knows. I don't think speculation is super fruitful on that. But Luke writes this text, and then Luke also writes the book of Acts, where you see several, I think seven or eight different sermons given by the early disciples. And those early sermons are probably patterned after the kind of sermon Jesus gave to persuade people of himself. So if you think about Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, what he does is he, he doesn't start with quoting from Romans or quoting from Galatians, because those things don't exist yet. He quotes from Amos and Joel and all of these Old Testament prophets to show just how Jesus is the culmination of these things. And in fact, Stephen, in his, uh, in his, when he's being martyred, his sermon, go read it, it's like 85% Old Testament and 15% and Jesus is the culmination of these things, that's when they start stoning him. But up until that, it's just good, faithful Hebrew exegesis of the Old Testament. Here's the point of all of this. If this is a way to read the Old Testament, it's not just a way, it's the way to read the Old Testament. It's not one among many possible options to read the Old Testament. It's the only right way to read the Old Testament. But you don't persuade people that this is the only way to read the Old Testament by insisting that it's the only way to read the Old Testament. You read the Old Testament and you show how it actually culminates in Christ. And this is where, as as D.A. Carson and and Douglas Moot speak of, the Christians and Jews, even till today, in the scholarly world, are in an ongoing conversation with one another about who really has the authentic Jewish faith. We don't do that by blocking one another out and saying, we're not going to listen to your scholarly consensus on any topic. There's no echo chambers in this regard. If you were to go to top universities where they're studying the Hebrew Bible, you'll find Christian and Jewish scholars, academics, working in those fields on the Hebrew Old Testament and arguing academically for their various interpretations of how do you piece this Bible together and get to Christ. So we don't say to to a Jewish person, uh, isn't it obvious the Old Testament is talking about Christ, therefore believe in Christ? You have your work cut out for you to go to the Old Testament and prove, show, that it is in fact speaking about Christ. And that's, that's what Jesus himself does. He doesn't come to these two disciples and say to them, behold, I am the Christ. Now, listen to whatever I tell you about the Old Testament. He, as a fellow traveler on the road, persuades them of the Old Testament pointing to Christ. And only after they're persuaded does he reveal himself to be the Christ. You notice that flow in the text. He uses the, the text to speak for itself. And then he reveals himself to be the one whom the text is speaking about. Now, that's a model you can have in your life as well. But what it requires is for you to not ignore all those scary passages in the Old Testament. And I think in the West, Western Christians are so often, so often, caught in this trap of reading the New Testament 90% of the time and the Old Testament like 5 or 10% of the time, if we dare to venture into those pages at all. But the Christian church would not exist without a Bible. And the Bible that is available to the early church is not the Bible that you have in front of you. The Bible available to the early church is only half of the Bible you have in front of you. It's the Old Testament. Actually, it's 75% of the Bible you have in front of you. All of those texts are what the church is built upon. And Paul and the other apostles come and they interpret those texts. And they write letters to help us understand how to interpret those texts. 
But they're insisting that this is actually what those texts are speaking about. Uh, a brief uh, way of thinking about this, this comes from uh, Dr. Piotrowski's book uh, in all the scriptures. Uh, all of the Bible is Christological, meaning all of it has its terminus and logical endpoint in Christ. The New Testament, where, where most of us are very comfortable, is Christocentric, meaning it doesn't just end in Christ. The whole time it's talking in, about, and around Christ. Go to Romans, go to the Gospel of Luke. They'll mention Christ explicitly. They'll make the connections for you. It's very straightforward. What the Old Testament is, is not Christological or Christocentric. The Old Testament is what he calls Christotelic, meaning it kind of builds all of these images and shadows out that have this kind of undefined endpoint, which need to be resolved. They're, it's Christotelic. It has this pointing, which points to what the New Testament says is Christ. He's the one who actually takes on the substance of these things. There's many prophecies that are like this. So that's just one way of doing that. All I'm saying is what Jesus does here is he gives us as disciples a way to read the text of scripture. And then that takes us to a third point. Not only is this a necessary event which gives us a way to read the text, but in giving us a way to read the text, it gives us habits as Christians that we need to cultivate. The habits are pretty simple. Uh, what Don Whitney calls in spiritual disciplines Bible intake, uh, what we often call uh, by various names personal devotional time, listening to scripture preached, hearing sermons, reading Christian books, whatever it may be. A habit that all Christians must cultivate is some manner of getting the Bible into ourselves. So not only so that we can benefit ourselves personally from the Bible, but also so we can be good witnesses to other people in the world about the contents of that Bible. And in an in a age and, and day where we have access to so many good resources, our temptation is to think, if I can Google it or reference to someone who has access to that information, that's the same as if I could put that together myself. But it's just not the same thing. If you're witnessing to a coworker and they ask you a hard question about Christianity, you say, oh, that's a great question. I have an article that I can send you on that. If you'll take 20 minutes of your day to read it, here you go. That could work. I'm not saying that that's a terrible option. But how much better would it be if you could yourself go and say, that's a hard question. I've asked it myself. Here's a couple of ways in which I've wrestled with it. And here's a couple of texts that have helped me to understand it. Or they ask you a difficult question about Christ. How do we know that he is the Old Testament Messiah? If you knew a couple of texts that talked about how Jesus is anticipated in the Old Testament and how he's fulfilled in the New, it, you're a flesh and blood human in front of them. It's more real, it's more powerful, it's more potent coming from you as opposed to sending an article or, or giving them a book to read or something like that. All of those other things are good. I'm not disparaging any of them. All I'm saying is you as the flesh and blood witness of Christ, which God has put in that particular place, you need to have the text inside of you so it can rub off on the world around you. So it gives us habits to cultivate as Christians. We need to be students of God's word uh, so that we can be good witnesses. We also need to be uh, obeyers of God's word, another habit that it calls us to. Because if Christ is really the one anticipating all of these Old Testament texts, well, he calls us many times in the Old Testament and in the New to obedience of various forms. So if he's the Messiah, if he is this one, 
And we are called not just to study his word, to see that it's him, but also if you read the Old Testament, if, if Christ is God, and the Old Testament text is something you've studied, you get God is the one who's worthy of worship. God is the one who's worthy of obedience. God is the one whom I owe my allegiance and my life to. My resources, my time, all that I am is God's, which means it's Christ's, which means you obey all that Christ commands you to do and call your whole life in submission to his word. So that's another habit. It's a difficult habit for us to cultivate, not only studying the word ourselves so we can know what it says, but also obeying what the word calls us to do. Another habit that the text in the Old and New Testament speak of is repentance. So those previous two things that I just mentioned, you might be thinking, I fall short, I fall short. Well, another habit that the Old Testament text points to is the need for regular repentance and reliance on God's provision because of our lack of provision. God reminds the Israelites uh, an abundance of times before they go into the promised land, you're going to accumulate for yourself wealth and bulls and goats and farms and fields and all these things. Remember that it's me who gave these things to you as a blessing, not you who merited them yourself. Lest you begin to think to yourselves, look what we have accumulated, let us go worship whatever gods we want to. And Christians often uh, get to this place where we think, it is my Bible study, my obedience, these merits which I now attain, which become my righteousness and my standing before God. The Old Testament is clear of the Israelites, the New Testament is clear of Christians, it is Christ his sacrifice, God's grace working through those things that gives us even the desire to enjoy scripture, even the desire to obey God's word. And so when we struggle to obey God's word, it doesn't call us to uh, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and go after it. It calls us back to him, to repentance and faith and reliance upon his grace to uh, cultivate within us things that are alien to us. They're alien to us because they were not in us to begin with. They're things that come from God to the new human. So that's at least three habits that I've given you. Uh, Let me just hit you with only one more habit that it calls us to cultivate, which is that it calls us uh, not just in study of Scripture and not just in obedience to Scripture, not just in regular repentance because of what Scripture says. Another habit it calls us to is what I would call the ordinary means of grace. You might have heard that term a lot of times. You might not know what that term means, but you might have used that term before. Let me explain to you what the ordinary means of grace is. Ordinary means of grace simply means the ways in which God gives grace to his people by means that are normal. Okay, that is just restating the definition, uh, uh, restating the term in the definition. It doesn't quite count as explaining it. What this means is, what God has done in the natural world is given us boring, normal structures by which he has said, here is a guaranteed way to gain access to my grace. Here are some guaranteed ways to get in the way of what I'm doing. What are those ordinary means? Well, uh, Bible intake is one of them, but not the kind of Bible intake you think about where you think about private devotional time in the dark of the morning. Uh, The ordinary means of grace for all of the church's history was just sitting under the normal preaching of God's word. Uh, Week in and week out, that can seem monotonous, mundane. It becomes part of your routine, your your regular life pattern. And yet, here is a way in which God has said, I will feed my people, my sheep, by my word. How do they get access to God's word? By hearing it in the worship assembly on Sunday. 
It's an ordinary means of grace. You might not walk away from every sermon thinking you want to light the world on fire and go uh, be a foreign missionary. Uh, You might not even walk away from every sermon knowing what you got out of that sermon. But the ordinary means of grace says, just like you eat meals on a regular basis, whether you're hungry or not, for normative sustenance, so too Christians feed on Christ's word as an ordinary means of grace. Uh, Sometimes you go home and you have your favorite meal for dinner. Sometimes you go home and you have the meal that you cooked for yourself the week before, and you have now heated up in the microwave, and here's what you're eating. You don't skip meals just because it's not what you crave. You eat because eating is a healthy thing to do. It's a normal part of life. So too is intake of God's word through the preaching and worship on Sunday. So as Christians, we don't go to church to feel a certain kind of way. We go to church because God has commanded us to as a means by which he cultivates our faith. So preaching is an ordinary means of grace. Prayer, both corporately with others and individually, privately, is a means of grace. It's a way in which we can access the grace of God. The observance of the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper is an ordinary means of grace. And nothing, you got, many of you were here last week for the baptism, nothing magical happened after the water. There was no lights, no fog, nothing like that. It's, a, it's an ordinary means of grace. It's a picture and a means by which God conveys his grace to us as his people. It's pretty, pretty ordinary. And there are many other ordinary means of grace I could mention. I just kind of hit some of the highlights. But if you're, if you're struggling with that concept, uh, maybe a picture would help. Um, and this picture comes from the, the words of these disciples. Did not our hearts burn within us as he revealed to us the scriptures, the things concerning himself? So if you think about how fires are started and how they are cultivated, let's say you're setting up and you're going to have a bonfire from like four in the afternoon to like, I don't know, 12 o'clock at night or one o'clock in the morning. And you're going you're gonna to have people over. You're going you're gonna to have fellowship and, and time together. How would you build and sustain a fire for that, that duration of time? You have a set amount of wood. You have some gasoline. You have, you have things uh, to start the fire with. How do, you, how do you get it to endure for the duration of that time? Well, if you've ever been to a bonfire, uh, the idea is not to burn the fire hot and fast and use up all your wood and all your, all your resources right at the beginning. Oh, because then it would be just barely burning and maybe go out before the end of the night. And, uh, and you need to get the fire going hot enough where it will burn, and you kind of let it coast. That's normally how people make fires. They, they get it going, and they kind of let it coast, maybe add a log or add some, some uh, kindling to it every now and again as it needs uh, to, to grow. But there's, there's an ordinary means that keeps every fire going beyond just the wood that you throw on top of it, which is the oxygen that the fire needs to just keep going, right? Now, what's funny about this is you don't see the oxygen. You don't observe the fire consuming oxygen from the world around you. You just look at the fire, you see the wood that it's burning, and you think the wood is the cause of all the things that are happening. But the fire needs oxygen. The fire needs oxygen to continue to go. In fact, if you want to put out a fire effectively and small enough, you just snuff it. You could do this with a candle. You just cover it, and it has no more oxygen, and therefore it goes out. Fire uh, is, is sustained by ordinary means like wood and oxygen. Now suppose someone was to say, I have an idea for how to sustain this fire over the course of the night. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take a wet blanket and I'm going to throw it on top of the fire because uh, water uh, is, is something that can, can keep me warm when it's a warm bath. So I'm going to soak the, the blanket in warm water 
And a, and a blanket itself is actually flammable. Right? If you throw a blanket on a fire, it'll, it'll burn. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a wet blanket soaked in warm water, and I'm going to throw it on top of the fire as a means of sustaining this fire through the night. And you might say, well, that's a terrible idea, because that would snuff out the fire almost immediately. And that's a little bit what it's like when, as, as Christians, we come up with extraordinary means by which to sustain our Christian lives outside of what God has prescribed in his word. And, and many times we can think, this is a good idea because I can check off all the logical steps. It seems like a wise decision to me to cultivate growth and health in my Christian life. But sometimes those things substitute out and cancel out the ordinary means of grace, like hearing the word of God preached, or sitting under the regular intake of God's word through prayer and scripture reading. The, those ordinary boring means sustain the fire good and well, and God kindles the fire slowly over time by those means. It's boring, it's ordinary, it's not extravagant, but it works. It keeps the fire burning. And so too, we should, we should be careful to observe the natural means by which God has promised to sustain the Christian walk throughout our lives. Fanciful ideas to add to the fire, no matter how wise they might seem, if they're not prescribed in God's word, they would be cautioned at best and avoided at worst. Here we have just boring ways to keep that fire of the Christian life going. Now, what I mean by this uh, is simply, let's say, in a, in a very on-the-ground application of our modern context, uh, if you have the Ligonier app or Desiring God or Christian books from Christian authors, those are good things that you could use to grow yourself spiritually. But they are no replacement. They are no replacement for the church. They are no replacement for brothers and sisters in Christ who you can fellowship with and who you can pray together with and you can sit under common preaching with. There are no substitute for those things. That would be like the person who says, I'm going to build a fire with no wood, no oxygen. I'm going to make my own tools to build a fire. Well, you have good tools right here. Why would you not just use what God has given as a normative means to grow and sustain your Christian life? Those are good things, but not ultimate things. There are sometimes more dangerous things that we have access to in our modern world. Uh, we have access to medias of all stripes and varieties, that can draw us away from the people of God into increasingly high theological and insular chambers where we don't dialogue with people who think differently than us. The internet has created a reality where you can access people across the globe who think like you do, but no one in real life because what you believe is so stringent. That's a huge danger for the Christian life. That's no way to grow a healthy Christian walk outside of the body and outside of even flesh and blood people in front of you. Similarly, there's all kinds of fanciful ideas I've heard from, uh, from Christians who think about uh, Eastern meditation and yoga being a means by which we can access the divine or the spiritual. Well, that is, that is the wet blanket example that I talked about earlier. Taking something foreign to the building of a fire and thinking this will sustain the fire over the long haul. And Christians ought to mark and avoid such practices. What we have is not fancy, uh, but it's the very thing that causes the revival of the early church. It's the very thing that causes the revival in the Great Awakening. And it's the very thing which has kept and sustained Christians through the long haul, kind of throughout the Christian walk, is these boring, normative, everyday means. And just like you can't remember the last 20 or 30 years of meals that you've had over your life, and yet you're still alive today, or you can't count how many breaths you've taken, and yet you're still alive, and you don't know how many times your heart has beaten, and yet you are still alive, so too, you might not remember the vast majority or content of any one sermon that you listen to or any sermon series you've ever listened to over the course of your life. 
You might not remember a number of the things that you've prayed for or that God has answered. And yet, these are the ways in which God keeps us alive as Christians in his word. So let's go to the Lord and praise him for these gifts. Father, you are our Savior, our King, our Lord. And yes, Father, you are also the one who sustains us. You don't just save us so that we can walk on our own. You rescue us and then you sustain us by your spirit and by your ordinary means of grace. Father, we thank you for the accessibility of these that we all have access to and the privilege of your word, your spirit, praying and accessing you uh, by prayer. Lord, we thank you that we have brothers and sisters in Christ. You can surround us and comfort us and strengthen us and encourage us and pray for us. Lord, we thank you that we have access to printed Bibles and for the abundance of resources which support all of these endeavors that we have as students of your word. And Lord, we pray most of all that we would obey the model of Christ in these verses. To study the scriptures, to see how they point to him, and ultimately to respond in the worship of him. Lord, would you enable us to see with eyes that must see by your grace and not harden our hearts as Pharaoh or as the Israelites of old. We pray this in your name. Amen.